What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, food myths with genetics expert Tim Spector and food writer and broadcaster Dan Saladino. Food is the best medicine, believes Tim Spector. He is professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London and author of the recent book Spoonfed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food Is Wrong. Joining Tim in conversation today, we have Dan Saladino. Dan is an award-winning writer and broadcaster whose voice is a familiar one from food programs across BBC Radio 4. His latest book is Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Here's Dan with more. Good evening, Tim. We live in an age of information wars, one that influences elections, shapes international relations, and also has affected the experience of living through a pandemic. Spoonfed, I think, is an attempt to wake us up to the information wars around food and the fact that the food industry, motivated as it is by commercial interests, attempts to shape the narrative around food and nutrition is unsurprising. But in the book's introduction, you highlight the need to question the advice given by doctors, scientists, and government. Can you give an example from the book that illustrates how badly we're being misinformed? Well, there are so many, it's very hard to to pick one, Dan. I think a good one would be, we should graze our food and not gorge. And, you know, that's a good example that we should be eating all the time small amounts rather than feasting on these sort of medieval banquet type ideas. And I think that's that's becoming in the last 30 years sort of mainstream thinking. And I think that that's really because of the food industry's pressure on us to involve new snacks and the concept of healthy snacks and that moving away from families sitting down for large uh, large meals, etc. And under the pretense that there was actually some science behind it to back it up. And of course, when you look at that data, it was based on about nine, nine students in some uni- university in the, you know, uh, in the US who were, who were studied rather badly. Even, and ne- that study was never repeated to say that their metabolism was better, therefore it was healthier. So in the book, there are hundreds of uh, examples like that of how a little bit of science was sort of distorted and, and taken and then reproduced by governments as, as to how we should eat in that, in that direction. But there's many others like, you know, the myth of calories, calories, are the only real things that matter and that you can 
burn off calories by exercise and therefore it doesn't matter what rubbish you eat, as long as you've got access to a playground for your kids, then they'll be fine. You know, that, 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 there are sort of two big ones that sort of come to mind uh, that, that were obvious. But is that, is, yeah, but that's that calories example. I'm just wondering, is, how much is that down to bad science or how much is that down to the fact that we now have more sophisticated ways of analysing what's going on in our interaction with food? I think it's all, clearly everything's a mixture of these things, but I think a lot of it was bad science and not realising that we didn't really understand as much as we did and, and that, the, you know, the keenness of doctors and scientists, yeah, like myself, uh, uh, who always try to think we understand a problem with our modern technology and whether that technology was in the 1970s or 80s, everyone thinks, aha, I've got the answer now. I've got something that measures calories. You know, this will answer, this explains it all without really being honest and saying, well, actually, we, we only understand a small fraction of what's going on here and we're massively simplifying every problem, you know, in order to either get a publication or a you know, a book, a book on the subject or be seen as an expert or to progress our careers. And then, of course, then if those ideas, they get lapped up by the food industry who can then convert it into marketing and work out any simple idea as a way of then selling you more of their particular product. So I think it's a, it's a sort of interesting construct of how poor science has, has fed a lot of uh, marketing because often it's not the Food companies themselves doing the science, they just perpetuate the sort of bad ones that they want to and, and sort of ignore the, the better, more skeptical reports. But of course, you know, it's, it's a very young science though, nutrition, and we keep thinking of it in terms of, oh, well, it's been around as long as, you know, physics and chemistry and maths and medicine. But of course it hasn't, it, it's, it's one of the newest sciences and that's why I think, you know, it, it, it's run into some of these problems. Mm. That's also made me think of, because uh, I make the argument in, in my book, which is about the loss of diversity and, and particularly agro-biodiversity. So the idea of that we have lost so much diversity, not just in terms of the different crops and plants and animal breeds that we have, but also within those crops the 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 you know this uniformity that's now spreading around the world in terms of high yielding uh, varieties and and types of, of of crops and plants and this reductionism really if you think about what was happening after the second world war with the green revolution this idea that you know reduce the problem and the solution down to let's produce as many calories as we mm. can for the world globally and then you know have these efficiencies of monocultures and you know by the end by t the end of the 20th century and now very much so into the 21st century we can see the consequences both in terms of our health and the pl planetary health as well so i think this this idea that we do you know um, as humans gravitate towards these very simple fixes but it doesn't take long for them to uh to to hit us hard so and and but you also mentioned again that time scale of the second world war that a lot of the bad science misinformation is a legacy of the second world war what can you just explain why you say that actually the aftermath of the second world war you know caused more nutritional problems than the actual war itself people you know millions of people died in in the sort of four or five years after the war as people were displaced and uh, 
oh, the industry was destroyed, etc. So there was a huge feeling that vitamins and, and, and nutritional advice could save many of those deaths. And that so it was very much alive, in, in, particularly in Europe, this idea that if you could give people a basic nutrition, you could keep them alive and that we must devise ways of doing that and that these should be some common guidelines we should all have in order to keep people alive and therefore work out how much protein they need, how much fat they need, how much carbohydrates. And from that dire situation where, you know, we, there were skeletal people and, and people dying of malnutrition and having stunted growth, et cetera, very rapidly, you know, evolved into this state where the food companies did an amazingly good job in creating cheap uh, food with plenty of calories to keep people alive. But those, that, that sort of mindset just stayed. And so the idea that you just had these minimum requirements to keep people alive combined with a cheap product was, you know, really... You we know, got locked we, in yeah, exactly. to that system and, I think, and way of thinking. And, and that, that same cheap system, as you say in your book, you know, was the reason why they didn't, you know, we, we stopped having choice of farming and why, you know, I mean, you know, you discuss it quite a lot. Well, we both do in our, in our books about how, you know, in the war, you know, the UK cheese industry got wiped out because everyone wants to just make cheddar. And I think so... Lots of things were happening in our uh, in that era to wipe out diversity, and it never often didn't really come back afterwards. And 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 I think that's that's really important for people to realise that this is such a young science, uh, but also you know the science was poor, and and many, many it, it, it you know no doctors go into nutrition science really. Um, it's 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 quite rare because it's it's seen as a, not a real. You know, it's not on the same par as the other ones. And yet, for me, it's the most exciting area of science at the moment. The fact that we're talking in the way we are talking is an example or an illustration of how the pandemic has sped up different ways of working or, or technology. How has, the, how has the pandemic changed the way we think about nutrition? And what have we learned from the past two years from covid yeah, well, I was hoping we wouldn't have to talk too much about COVID because I, I get to talk a lot about that, Dan. But the mm -hmm. uh, um, there, but no, in the context there are some, of food, there are some fun things. I mean, so with the Zoe app that eventually got downloaded by about five million people, we were able to do experiments on a scale that no one else could do. So we got a million people, and I'm sure many listening who were logging it did our diet questionnaire, and in the US and Sweden as well, and it turned out that. This is the world's biggest diet survey, which we did in a week just because we had an app. Uh, would have cost millions in five years before COVID. We were able to learn that actually people, about a third of people really changed their, their habits for the better. And a third of people changed their habits for the worse. And only about a third stayed the same. And this is because just changing where we're working from and our habits when we get up in the morning and when we, how much time we have to help ourselves or cook ourselves. And it, it went in both directions. That was really interesting. So I was really quite surprised that how many people did better in the pandemic and actually thought about food more, got less cheap sandwiches at work and actually took, you know, the care to make a decent lunch. But equally, there are people who maybe couldn't cook very well themselves and just ordered lots of takeaways and uh, did the opposite. So there was this huge disparity and uh, there's even disparities in the UK between the north and the south. Southerners 
suddenly became more alcoholic and, and Northerners uh, less alcoholic, you know, all kinds of weird stuff like that. And this seemed to coincide also with people's moods, which did also, some got, were actually happier, uh, some got sadder. But the other thing we found was that COVID, when we looked at diet and COVID, rather than the results of the lockdown, we saw that diet quality was the main factor in food that determined how severe your COVID was. So it was one of the big risk factors. So people had poor quality diets, full of ultra processed foods, loss of diversity, and not many plants, had significantly higher rates of hospitalization and death and severe and long COVID. And I think that was even when you adjusted for other social factors and uh, obesity and diabetes, et cetera. So that was the big thing that came out of it for me, that all this talk about immunity and getting your jabs and uh, doing this other kind of, you know, this, this is a real wake-up call to the UK, which has the worst record, eats the most ultra-processed food, probably has the worst diet in Europe, I would say, that this is something we could all do something about and that even the government could also do something about if it really wanted to, if it wasn't you know, so in the hands of uh, the food companies. And just picking up on that point, you mentioned ultra-processed foods. Another point that you make in the book, which really struck me, was that you say that after 30 years of silence and a virtual unofficial ban on studies into ultra-processed foods, some trials are defying the food industry and finally showing how, regardless of calories, these ultra-processed foods alter our metabolism and induce overeating, especially in children. So this is as much about the information that hasn't been sought as the as the misinformation we're being given. That's right. And, you know, and it took some, an independent set of researchers at the National Institutes of Health, which get direct monies and they can do whatever they like with it. It's a sort of, they don't get paid very much, but they have this amazing scientific freedom that very few uh, nutritional scientists do. And so these guys have been planning this for ages and finally got the ability to study it and basically got people in-house. They kept them in, in a lab for two weeks and they fed them either ultra-processed food or the whole food equivalent and saw these huge differences in hunger and people coming back for extra food. And that was, the, that was a real surprising finding. And it, it just shows that it took a completely independent group to get that sort of money together to study it because the food companies have really been masking the whole idea of quality of food by talking about how much fat is in there, how much sugar is in there, how much salt, tweaking them around, adding in other ingredients to keep us confused and keep us talking about different types of fats or different things like this, minute details of how you might substitute one for another without thinking of food as a whole and how you know important it is to go back to the whole foods and how dangerous just dressing up something that might have healthy stickers on the label and extra vitamins and all this kind of nonsense. If the same food gives you extra hunger, you're going to eat 10, 20% more every day. Uh, it's also going to give you sugar dips. It's going to give you other kinds of metabolic problems. And it's going to interfere with your gut microbes. And, you know, before three years ago, this hadn't been discussed at all. Thanks to this brilliant smokescreen of, of food companies giving out grants to study, 
you know, the benefits of exercising kids or how good diet drinks are, or let's look at one particular type of fat in rats and see what it does. And it's this, the idea that we've, we've failed to really look at food quality. And I think this is something that comes out in both our books, teaching people, it's not about macronutrients. It's, it's about the whole food. And in all these foods, there are hundreds of chemicals in each of them. And we always tend to fixate on one particular ingredient, you know, when, uh, when a tennis mm. player has a banana, we only think of potassium. We don't think of the other 600 things uh, about it in that banana or the fact that there are, as you, you describe it, you know, lots of other bananas we never get to eat, which might have all kinds of different chemicals mm. in them. Well, let's, t- let's turn to one of the, one of these staple foods that, that men- most people around the world eat and, and thinking about grains. Um, so I, in my book, I, I travel to the, as close as I can to the Fertile Crescent to um, go to the birthplace of, of farming where people there domesticated wild grasses and that's how we end up with wheat and barley. And from then I tell the story of how those crops spread around the world and adapt and also are influenced by the preferences of farmers and cooks. And we end up with, with, I think, in Svalbard, in the Arctic Circle, which is a seed vault, more than 210,000 samples of wheat, unique samples of wheat, whereas a farmer in the UK today will be given a recommended list of of, of less than 10. Uh, does that, that idea of this loss of diversity at the very heart of the food system, is, is, that, is that something that, that you think really does connect the two books and, and how? Let's, let's stay with the grain example. Yeah, I think it, that's a perfect example about the sort of synergy in a way between our, our two ideas. Uh, you're, talking, you know, you're talking about the extinction of, of many of these things that we had um, we, uh, and uh, the fact that we, you know, we just have one type of wheat because of how bread was designed, really, uh, you know, I mean, there's lots of other reasons, but you know, the one reason we've come down to this very single type of wheat is it had to be a tough, a tough high protein one to fit in with the current fast methods of making, you know, Wonder Bread or Mother's Pride. And we've given up all the other ones, which are a bit too tricky for the manufacturers to, to use. And that generality has this knock-on effect on our health, which we've only really discovered that even subtle differences between different types of wheat, let alone different grains, we know impact our health because the variety we have in our, in our foods, say, let's take grains, uh, has an impact on our gut microbes because we know that our, our health now is crucial on this community of microbes in, in, our, in our gut, which we call the gut microbiome. And the more diverse the number of species are, the healthier we are. And the, more, the way we can get them more diverse is to feed them a diverse set of plants. And given that plants are collections of thousands of chemicals, even a subtle difference between two types of wheat is uh, going to have a, a big impact on those microbes. And so if you can get people to eat a much wider variety of grains, which is a really great source of protein and fiber, then they will produce healthier gut microbes, which will in turn 
help their immune systems, which, you know, will help them prevent them dying of COVID. So there's now a sort of nice, very much link between, you know, the historical side uh, and the sort of cultural and ethnic side that you're exploring and this full circle uh, of why that occurs. And you said, you know, um, this disappearing grain analogy, why we, you know, had all these thousands of grains and, uh, you know, uh, in the book, I, I describe how, you know, there are, there are only a few breads that I can eat without causing me big sugar spikes. And there are only really sourdoughs and the best one is a rye sourdough. And of course, you know, we used to eat a lot of rye and now we don't, it's harder to, to cook and it's, you know, and it, and it's not perhaps as efficient to grow as some of these other ones. And that has a health effect. Well, I mean, but then, yeah, because I, I cite the story of um, bear barley on the Orkneys and this idea that the further north you head in, in um, Europe and these colder climates, that the likes of rye and barley, you know, along with oats, grew, you know, were possible to grow. And whereas in more southern warmer parts of Europe. That's why we ended up with, uh, they had um, the types of wheat where you could have a big fluffy loaf. And it, it, at a time when we are thinking about reducing emissions in agriculture, the types of modern wheats that we're talking about do require a lot of inputs when it comes to you know fertilizers or pesticides, fungicides. And one of the things that drew me to the idea of why does diversity of wheat matter is because so many of these endangered types of grains and i in in turkey i came across farmers growing emma which was one of the f earliest domesticated types of wheat and uh this is a a really resilient type of wheat that they were growing but also they, they considered their emma wheat to be like medicine and there are also conversations i was having with people who were you know studying wheat and, and grow experimenting by growing different types of wheat that this argument that these older land race varieties of wheat uh, because they are able to grow without a lot of chemical input or fertilizers they have deeper root systems uh, they have a, a lower yield but they have deeper root systems and, and some of the tests that have been done indicate higher levels of mineral content because of these these root networks which the modern wheats don't have but it, is there any way in which we could test whether one type of wheat, like a, an, a more, a, a, an older, ancient type of landrace wheat, might be more beneficially nutritionally than a modern wheat? It's very hard to do those kind of studies because, again, we don't mm. always know which chemicals we're looking for. I mean, you can grind up any plant now and, and put it under spectrophotometry and break it down into its ingredients. And we can tell they're different, but it, it'd be very hard to say which are the key ones that are different. I mean, other than fiber content, perhaps this other element of plants that many people don't know about, but is really important for your gut microbes, the defensive chemicals in them, if they contain more of the polyphenols and these antioxidants, that would be a, a good sign as well as you could measure the nutrients that come from the soil. A lot of that might depend also on the soil and whether you're using fertilizers and uh, how natural that is as well. But I think that they're hard to do these experiments in reality. And that's why proving that organic produce is better for you than 
non-organic, other than other than mm. lack of pesticides and herbicides, is quite difficult. I also, in my book, looked at this idea that there are some tastes that have become endangered as well. So I, I, I travelled to northern India, and there were these bitter citrus fruits that were really enjoyed by communities you know, living in the Garo Hills. And this idea that they have a relationship with bitterness, is that relevant to the kind of to the type of chemicals that you've just mentioned? Absolutely, yeah. And the health benefits, perhaps, Lee? Yeah, so in general, po- these polyphenol chemicals come from either brightly coloured plants, those dark blue, purples, reds, or they come, uh, and that's in berries and, and things like this, or grapes. When I was a kid, grapes used to be quite sour. Now they're genetically bred to be very sweet. But, but you know that grape skin, the red wine taste on the mouth, that's the tannin, that's the polyphenol that's good. So I think by us being forced by f- the food industry to move towards sweeter things, we are moving away from the nat- eating the natural defense chemicals in many of these, these, these plants that we now consider a bit too bitter. And all the brassicas have high levels of polyphenols, you know, even the famous Brussels sprouts, et cetera, that, uh, you know, we've been <laughs> always go on about every Christmas, but that kind of bitterness, I think kids are not taught to, to eat it as, as much. And that's changing even in one generation, I think. Let's stick with sweetness. And there's a, a honey story in, in my book, because I, I tell the story of the honey guide bird and the Hadza some of the last remaining hunter-gatherers in in um, Tanzania, in, in, in Africa, East Africa. And we both talk about the, or write about the Hadza uh, in our books. And we, we, we spent time together uh, with the Hadza back in 2017. In my case, I was there thinking that this relationship they have with the honey guide bird in which they whistle and the honey guide bird sweeps down and then guides the hunter to a tree, a baobab tree, where the bees' nests are, where the honey can be found. And just this mind-blowing, mutual, uh, beneficially beneficial relationship that they have, that, that for me was such a powerful story of these skills, knowledge, and things that we can never quite figure out how they originated. What did you take away from the Hadza? Well, I remember us bonding over lots of babo- baboon poo um, uh, which still and porcupine. We we, we, we ate are porcupine a few people to have, to, to have eaten and, porcupine, yeah. um, which isn't on most menus. So, struck by really how really easy their life was, which is you know everyone assumes incredibly hard life, but food was everywhere. Given their their attitude to it, that they try everything to eat eat everything, and so they ended up having a huge diversity of foods and berries and. Uh, seeds and uh, tubers they used to dig up. It was really abundant. And I remember, you know, thinking, how, wouldn't it be great if everyone just lived, lived off baobab porridge every morning, which uh, we, we found was great. So it was that diversity, but also linking it to the fact that they, just so you're talking, you, you talk about all these plants going extinct, our gut microbes are going extinct. And, and uh, when we tested that, Part of the reason I was there as well with you was was to test the gut microbes, and they have forty percent more species than uh, we do, and so as well as uh, losing our plant diversity, I think we've also lost our microbial diversity due to sterile foods, lack of choice, antibiotics, etc. 
And do we know if if many of those so that 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 those microbes that they have that we no longer have are they beneficial microbes? Nearly always, yes. And they 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 are, and where there are some rare people who do have some of them, and but uh, you know some of those microbes have evolved differently in us now to the African versions, and so mm. might have turned nasty on us. But I think just the idea that you know they've got so much more richness not only in what they eat, but also inside their bodies and the whole thing is linked. I think to me, that was my main take home reason from that amazing trip, mm. which, you know, like you, I think uh, we'll never forget. Most of us will have a five-year plan. Serious legacy investors will have a 50-year plan, but very few people think about what the world will look like in 500 years. Join Intelligence Squared in partnership with Ytree to debate the motion the world will be a better place in 5, 50 and 500 years. With guests including the sculptor Sir Anthony Gormley, futurist and entrepreneur Mo Gaudat and climate activist Clover Hogan, moderated by the journalist and broadcaster Kamal Ahmed. Register to join us live online Tuesday 3rd of May from 7pm at y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. Let's stay with microbes because we are all, we are also both big cheese fans. And in my book, I tell the story of three cheeses. Each one tells the story of a different part of the world, not only of pasture, of breeds of animals and the skills of the of the cheesemakers, but also the role of microbes. And, and I it selected three endangered, unpasteurized milk cheeses. And how important and safe micro these these yeah disappearing microbes. But also it's our relationship with cheese is is so familiar, and yet what's become unfamiliar are these microbes. So, how important is it that we eat cheese, and how important is it that we understand what kind of microbes are there or might not be there? As I said, you know, we, we the UK has gone through this massive change from having, as you write in your book, this huge industry pre-war, and then it all being decimated as we all produced industrial cheddar, and then we started getting French cheese, and now. Now we have a huge range of uh, so arguably more more different cheeses than the French do. And so there is this revolution going on, uh, which is fantastic to see. But there's still two types of cheese out there that most people still eat frozen craft slice type or frozen cheese that has is dead and you put on pizza that is just uh, fat and, and slime and adds nothing really to giving you microbes. So... People need to start thinking about cheese in a different way for their for their health. Realize there's huge range of what we call a cheese, uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be unpasteurized. Although that does add extra variety and diversity to it, there are still some very good artisan pasteurized cheeses. But we need to realize mm. that most cheese we eat is actually very bad for us and has doesn't have these good microbes. But if it's got plenty of microbes, fungus on it. It's going to be really good for our gut microbes and should be a, a really key part of our diet, not as many, most doctors still believe, warn people off cheese because it's bad for your cholesterol. It's probably, the converse is true. Let's turn to some questions, Tim. The first one comes from 
Olivia, and I think this is a lot of the questions will be from people who want to take some of the arguments, the ideas, the issues that you and I have covered and want to make a practical difference. And this is this is one such question. It's from Olivia. I'm interested to know more about my individual response to different foods. What do you recommend I do? At the moment, you just need to experiment. And you can do that by, I suggest everyone when they're starting to to take a meal like breakfast, which we haven't really discussed much, but it's the meal that we tend to eat the same meal nearly, you know, most years of our life. And we get into a rut on it. And uh, if you're not sure whether you're a carved person or a fat person, just mix it up. And, and if you're used to having your breakfast cereal, just go for a week and have a high fat breakfast, which would either be an egg or a yogurt or nuts and seeds and see how you feel. Just try and remember three hours afterwards, you know, how do you feel? And and it, we've only realized because of the studies we're doing with the Zoe predict studies that everyone responds differently to the same foods. And some of those responses are lack of energy, increased appetite, sugar dips, and we need to start learning to listen to our bodies uh, in terms of how we feel, not just putting this, looking at the scales at the end of the year, but actually try to think more about the foods and, and which is the best ones to suit us. Now, so playing around with breakfast is a great experiment everyone could do. And I, I tell everyone to skip breakfast once or twice, see how you feel. You don't need it and you don't massively overeat afterwards. So it's not a danger to do that, but it's not for everybody. And so I think the mm. idea that we can experiment with food, not only what we eat, but how we eat, I think is, is crucial to this idea of trying to understand our own bodies and our own metabolisms. And yes, there will be fancy tests and the, the Zoe, the company I helped found, is coming to the UK. There will be a, a, a test available in April, but it's going to be hard to get because there's so many people waiting for it. So I think everyone needs to just embrace this idea of experimenting, realize there isn't one size fits all and uh, listen to your body. And many people, when they start thinking about, do act, can actually feel three hours after a, you know, uh, their, their cornflakes, a dip in their uh, attention levels, their exercise, their appetite. Some people can't, but start listening to your body. I think that's, that's what I would do, as well as look after your gut microbes and uh, you can get your microbes tested and there was something called the blue poo test. I don't know if we want to go into the blue poo test, Dan. Did you do the blue poo test with me? Well, I, I remember eating a, a blue muffin. A blue <laughs> muffin, and uh, I remember eating—I don't know how many muffins I ate a day, but yeah, too many muffins for the for the <laughs> test that that I was invited along. Um, but maybe that's for another another yeah, but uh, conversation. A, for to, people who want a, yeah. a free sort of idea of where their gut microbes are. There's a web, you can go to Blue, Blue Poop Challenge and you bait, we've got actually about 50,000 people around the world have done this. So actually it's quite a good global project. Mm. And you, you make yourself a, whatever it is, bake something with lots of blue dye in it, eat it, see how long it takes to get out into the toilet and then measure it, compare it to everyone else. And the, the longer it is, the worse your gut microbes are. <laughs> and so... That, that's something that everyone can try. 
Let's move on to a, 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 another question. And this comes from Remy. And Remy's asking, uh, and it's linked to rare and endangered foods, is asking, which food in my book would I l- most like to see widely available in supermarkets? There is a, uh, there, the, the one that comes to mind, there is a chapter from southern Germany, and it's based in the Swabian Alps. Very difficult place to farm. But uh, a farmer was mourning the loss of something that had kept his ancestors alive for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And it was a lentil, a very humble food that grew in these Alps in these harsh conditions. And by the 1960s, it had disappeared. It was extinct. And he managed to find some seeds from a seed bank in Russia. And there's a picture of him online with his fellow farmers cheering as they've rediscovered their their lentil. And they're now growing that. And it's back. And it's delicious. I've tried some. Wonderful, wonderful food. Um, But the reason I choose that one is because his story then inspired lots of people across Europe to then investigate what kind of um, peas and beans had existed in, in different parts of, yeah, all across Europe and to start growing them again. And we have, in the case of the UK, companies like Hodmadod, who have researched what was growing here during the Bronze Age. And they have brought back British fava beans, for example, and they're growing lentils. And so I would want to see a a greater diversity of these uh, legumes appearing in supermarkets and just telling a bit more of the story of when they used to be grown in the UK and uh, you know and also um, that there is so much more diversity out there that we are not given access to so I think it's a really simple humble food that illustrates that point I think the other the other point is that if it's been hard to grow generally those plants are hardier and have better defenses than ones that have a cushy life and uh, grow up in a hydroponic you know a sun-kissed internal greenhouse so i think those plants are likely to have more natural uh, nutrients and defense chemicals in them so mm. that's another reason we shouldn't abandon tough plants to grow because they're tough and they they cost a little bit more or they you don't get the acreage mm. so, part the, 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 yeah thanks tim and and um that uh, the answer I gave is is also partly a response to Alicia as well, who was asking: Is the kind of eating that you both recommend strictly for the middle classes who can afford to pay more for their food? And I I would cite that lentil example. I mean, it's an extremely yeah. I mean, it's it's I I think a really delicious, healthy food, but also affordable to most people. This humble lentil, it, it can be grown in that way. What's your answer to Alyssa's question about the kind of foods that you're interested in that you write about, Tim? And uh, are they just for the middle classes who can afford them and pay more for their food? Yeah, I, I do get. And I, I mean, things like fermented food. People say, "Oh well, it's already well recommended kefir and kombucha," but they're you know really expensive in the in the shops around me. No one, you know, unless you're well off, you can't afford it. All of these things you can actually make yourself for fractions, you know, and you, as long as you can buy a pint of milk, you can uh, make kefir, yogurt, kombucha. You just need to buy some tea and some sugar. So it's more about education than actual 
than money. And I think generally, I think the only caveat we have is that if people can't cook or can't conceptualize how to cook, then we are in trouble about translating some of these ideas. So everything I say in the book is sort of qualified by the, the biggest thing we need to do is to change the food culture in this country, change the way people are educated about food and to teach everyone as kids, you know, not only about the quality of food, but how to prepare a basic meal and, and cut up vegetables. Mm. This also takes us into a question asked by Jack, who's, who's asking, this is his question, it's clear what we can do as individuals to make better choices about our food, but what can we do to help change the system? And just link to what Tim has been talking about and that question from Alicia, I, I mention, and, and I think you mentioned as well, Tim, the impact of subsidies that actually the true cost of food is not really recognized in what we're paying because of the underlying economics of the food industry, food production, and globally also government subsidies. So billions and billions of, of dollars are, are spent by governments around the world that enable cheap, abundant monocultures of maize to be grown in the Midwest of America for fishing boats to cross the world, and also for a lot of the um, commodity crops to be grown. And I think that idea of what can we do to change the system, would you agree, Tim, that we, nothing really can change radically until we invest public money in the form of subsidies in a, in a different kind of way? Yeah, we've got, to, we've got to change the system because real food's never going to be able to compete with uh, ultra-processed foods under the current model because the gap between them is going to get bigger because all our tax money is going towards ultra-processed foods. And the profits are better because of auto automation is increasing, but it's, it's not increasing the same speed when you're actually trying to create food from scratch rather than just using extracts and sticking them together in a, in a factory under high pressure. So I think it's, it, it's getting to that system, the lobbying system, which is basically a, form, a modern form of corruption that instead of bribing people directly, we have this system in this country where uh, food companies just lobby MPs, parliament, and stops any real effective change, which either subsidies or it's a tax on junk foods. And there was a real opportunity for Boris Johnson, for example, after he got he nearly died of COVID to actually extend the sugar tax and tax out ultra-processed food, which would have shifted that balance. And so cheap food wouldn't always be the worst food. It would, uh, it, it would often, it, it, we could change that. But it's a, mm. it's a battle both from the top and mm. the bottom and educating people through education. Mm. Another question I think linked to that also is which country or culture has the best approach to eating. A, a really fascinating question, difficult to answer, I find. Uh, and have a think, Tim, while I just give some thoughts on what I reference in the book. So I, I was re really interested in this idea that beyond individual choices, that what, what role cities can play in this as well. And I was thinking of the way in which Copen, Copenhagen, for example, uses public procurement to encourage diversity in its farming sector or the, the farming that takes place around the city as well. So in some of the contracts, it 
it issues for food to arrive into hospitals or care homes and particularly schools, not only does it have price in there, but it also has kind of diversity clause that the the more diverse uh, or the more varieties a farmer can offer of apples, for example, that ticks a box in the contract. So it encourages farmers to add more diversity in their orchards. So I think there are some cultures and cities, I think, are perhaps sometimes more interesting than thinking about entire countries. So I think public procurement, Copenhagen, you know, that that's one that I would cite as being an interesting one to look at. What for you, though, Tim, in terms of a country or culture with the best approach to eating? I mean, there's so many countries, it's hard to, you know, but a, a good example, I think, is uh, South Korea, because it's the one country that has uh, accelerated to the top of the food chain, if you like, since the 1970s, when it was uh, really quite poor in terms of GDP. And suddenly they've become a, you know, on a par with Western Europe in terms of the money generated in a really short time. So in about 30 or 40 years, you know, one generation, they have got to be in, in, in the same way that's taken us perhaps 100 years to get there. And I think you would have expected them to have become obese and diabetic and have all kinds of problems, and they haven't. They've got, you know, they've hardly changed, and they have one of the lowest uh, rates of obesity and diabetes in in developed countries. And I think the reason is they have such a strong food culture mm. that just being rich didn't change their attitude to food. Every kid learns from an early age how to make their own kimchi. They have, you know, they recognize this huge culture of, of fermenting their own foods and everyone knows how to chop it and brew it. And it's something that every single kid knows. We don't have an equivalent to that in the UK, you know, apart from how to make brownies maybe, but, you know, at school. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's, it, it, I think it's that, that essential, they don't want to break with that tradition and that strong food culture. And I think that's the other extreme of this. So, you can do this through cultural methods or you can do it through sort of legislative ways. But I think realizing that we have to, you know, I think we've got to re-educate our kids with some uh, very strong food culture in order to, in order for all these things to work. To, to tell them mm-hmm. that how much, it, how important it is to start valuing, you know, some of these great British foods that uh, have long, have lo- you know, long ceased to be seen as important. Mm. Uh, well, on the question, on the point of diversity, here's a question, Tim. I'm, I'm curious if the authors believe that the human body ideally requires constant diversity in food types, i.e., different fruits, vegetables, grains, to be its healthiest, hence creating maximum longevity and reduce cancers, chronic diseases. As I feel, like our ancestors and many animals only found or eat a small group of things due to limited availability. What are your thoughts, Tim? Are we are we being unrealistic and hyping the idea of diversity in diets? Well, it's a great question. And I think I would have answered differently before we started doing studies directly looking at our indicator of, of gut health. So if we take our indicator of gut health, which is gut diversity, how many species we have, which is linked to nearly 
associated with nearly every chronic disease we have in the West, including susceptibility to COVID or diabetes or cancer or heart disease or depression or you know, even uh, all kinds of other neurological problems. So you take that as a sign of how your gut might influence your uh, health, and some of it's two ways. The, the way to maximize that, we found, was through not through being a vegetarian or a vegan or, you know, having some keto diet, but it was purely adding up the number of different plants someone ate in a week, uh, coming up with this magic total of 30, which may change when we get more data, but currently 30 seems to be the sweet spot. And that, that means not eating 30 uh, kale 30 times a week, but 30 different ones because of the chemicals. So, um, yeah, we'd like more data, and but we have to remember we, humans are omnivores, and we do eat a different diet around the world, and some people do survive very well, you know, Inuits eating mainly fat diets and uh, others eating plant diets. So we have the ability to evolve, but currently for most of us, we're this omnivore and are, are, we're set up to have, to have diversity, to thrive maximally. So I'm not sure we have all the answers, and that number may mm. change, and there may be exceptions because all of us are unique. And that's why you know, I, people do go up to me and say, I only eat meat. You know, I'm a, a total carnivore. For two years, I only eat meat for every single meal, and look at me, I'm super healthy. So well, uh, yeah, there are and, exceptions. And, and my thoughts on that are, uh, and again, in my book, I'm taking the bit, the long view. So I, I even think about two million years of hominids and yeah, a few hundred thousand years of Homo sapiens and just a couple of centuries, really, of industrialized food systems. And so I'm very interested in that very, that they, you know, that long view. So, and this is, takes us back to the Hadza. The Hadza are thoroughly modern human beings, but they are a clue in in terms of uh, the, the kind of diets our ancestors might have been exposed to. And in the case of the Hadza, it's eight hundred, uh, a menu of eight hundred different plants and animal species. A potential menu, I add, because you know clearly individual Hadza might not be exploiting that diversity throughout the year as the seasons changed, as different foods come and go. But it was it's huge diversity that, that our ancestors evolved with. So I yeah, I think that's that, that kind of those are my thoughts on, I guess, diversity and and why does it matter. But I and I also make the the argument in my book beyond personal health that in, in terms of the disease resilience that diversity in farming systems can bring as well there's a food security argument there to be to be made another question tim assuming a balanced and diverse diet what supplements if any do you take or recommend and this is covered in spoon fed so um yeah I'd be interested to. I get I get more uh, complaints about uh, my views on this than anything else, so it comes with a disclaimer. <laughs> I used to take quite a few supplements. I used to take omega threes. I used to take calcium and vitamin D. I used to give them to my kids, and I also used to take B twelve, particularly when I uh, switched and gave up meat. I now take nothing, and I believe that most of the data. On 99% of supplements and additives uh, shows no benefit to humans. 
to people who have a reasonable diet, as, as suggested here, that the additional of these chemicals, which, you know, they can be dressed up as called vitamins, but they're all chemicals, often made in vast factories in China through often not very good processes, may often be harmful to you. And so unless you have a particular deficiency, I think the one ex exception, you know, would be B12 for many people uh, who have given up meat and dairy. Uh, I think there are quite a few people who are deficient and it's worth getting that checked. It does seem to work if you are deficient. But for general, adding an extra bit to someone's diet has not been shown in any real sphere that I'm aware of to be beneficial. Although humans, as Dan brought up earlier, do like a simple solution and mm -hmm. nothing simpler than taking a tablet every morning or giving it to the kids to assuage a certain anxiety. And so mm -hmm. we're very susceptible to this. But unfortunately, I don't believe that any of them really work unless you've got problems. Uh, and that's that's the bottom line. We're just coming to the end now, Tim, but a, a phrase that has come up a few times in our conversation, ultra processed foods uh, for people listening and watching. What, what's a simple user's guide to identifying an ultra processed food? Well, it's a tough one because there isn't a unifying uh, answer to this. One is if, it, if, if you look at a packet and it's got more than 10 ingredients, it's probably an ultra-processed food. The other is that all those ingredients are extracts of, of a real food rather than the food itself. So they would be, rather than having a soybean in it, it would be extracted protein of soybean added to extruded wheat protein or uh, starch extract or emulsifiers, a glue to stick it together, which, and then you'd have some artificial sweeteners and you'd have some artificial flavorings. And sadly, you know, 50% of all our calories come in foods made this way. Where none of the ingredients actually resemble the original plant they came from. And I think that's, mm. the, that's the key to this. We need better definitions. We ideally need labeling on the packets to say how ultra processed this is. The food companies is their number one fear of doing that. But Look at the number of ingredients, and if you don't recognize them as something you could actually uh, get or feel as whole food, it's not, a, it's not a whole food. It's ultra-processed. Most food is processed to some extent, mm. even our favorite cheese, Dan. But so Absolutely. I think we need to focus mm. on this ultra-processed group mm. where all of those extracts come from, not the an extract of an extract. Mm. Thanks so much, Tim. And every time we have a conversation, it, it gives me uh, you know renewed enthusiasm for to, to kind of delve deeper into these these food stories, but also to celebrate diversity. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get up to the thirty different plants a week, but I'm definitely going to uh, have a have a new attempt to uh, increase my plant diversity. So That's thanks. Than veganuary, yeah. <laughs> which we didn't get onto, but maybe perhaps another time. And if there are things that you've heard from our conversation that you think other people might enjoy or benefit from being aware of, you can use the hashtag IQ2. And perhaps that's another way for Tim and myself to spot some other questions that we didn't have time for. So that's hashtag IQ2. But it's been a great pleasure. So thank you, Tim. Thanks to the audience for for spend sharing this hour with us and to Intelligence Squared. 
What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.